Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Sumi Das, who is a partner at Capital G. Capital G is Alphabet's independent growth fund. Some of their investments include Airbnb, Lyft, and Duolingo. We discuss Capital G's relationship to Google, Google Ventures, and the advantages of a single LP. Sumi also spends a lot of time not only thinking about consumer opportunities in North America, but also emerging markets. So we focus on some of the differences between building a consumer technology company and evaluating opportunities in different regions around the world, and what makes technology transferable to other markets, and also not transferable. Without further ado, here's Sumi. Sumi, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am good. Very excited to be with you, Mike. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. So let's start at the very beginning, Sumi. What was your initial attraction to technology? I'm probably an unobvious VC in that I wasn't sort of attracted to technology naturally when I, when I was young. You know, I was sort of more of a in high school, more of an arts person, really, a big theater geek. And then when I went to college, studied both economics and theater. So not necessarily sort of a technologist at heart. I was uh, somewhat of a gamer and and uh, took a couple of coding classes in, in, in school. So tangentially involved, but not, uh, not super kind of, uh, it wasn't sort of front and center in my life. What started to get me attracted to the space was actually a, a few career experiences right out the gate when I started my career. And so I, um, I graduated in and around the financial crisis and uh, became an investment banker in 2010 and then worked in private equity for several years. And I was kind of in, in the, in the media and telecom space, which was exciting to me because I sort of had this theater background and, and wanted to be an involved sort of in the media industry. And at the time, I spent a lot of time with, with companies that were basically content companies and telecoms infrastructure companies. So things like, um, you know, data centers and uh, spectrum companies we were sort of buying and selling spectrum for a lot of the big telcos. And as we were digging into that whole space, what was sort of became clear to me was that all the value and growth of these companies was being driven by consumption of content and data on the web, which was sort of obvious at the time, but really on mobile, which was kind of the new thing back then. And so I got an early sense of like a bottoms up signal of like where the world was going and kind of the the impact that technology could have. And going back to my theater background, I sort of know how to tell a good story. And so I, I was like, here's a story that is interesting to me. And so that's really what started, what piqued my interest in, in technology. And I started paying a lot more attention to the world of the internet and what's happening out here in the Valley. Why like venture capital, private equity, and how did you end up at Capital G? So I was at this private equity firm and sort of and had this, you know, aha moment of the future is mobile. And that's, that's going to determine a lot of sort of our behavior patterns. But at the same time, it was clear to me that the sort of private equity business model was not well built to invest in, in companies that were going to sort of drive these innovations. You know, we were looking for cash positive businesses with leverage, et cetera. And we just didn't understand sort of hyperscale companies that were, you know, burning money. Um, and that was, that was something that we struggled with. And so uh, as I became increasingly convinced about, about the future, I started to think about 
where could I go to uh, to start to learn about this space and kind of be more of a proactive participant? And frankly, Mike, I had no connection to the West Coast or the Valley. I didn't really even know much about the venture capital industry at all. And so uh, it's funny to admit this, but I basically looked up all the big technology companies and I was like, I'm going to go get a job at one of these places and I'll sort of figure it out. And um, serendipitously, Google at the time had just started a growth investment fund uh, back in 2013. And through a bunch of different connections, got connected to uh, Jesse Wedler, one of my partners now at the, at the fund, started having a bunch of conversations and Eventually did two interviews. This is a funny story. I interviewed at Square uh, back in 2013, and I interviewed with Capital G. Didn't get the job at Square, um, and so ended up at and ended up at Capital G. And really, my thinking at the time was was not very sophisticated. I was like, I don't really know what this is, but uh, worst case, I'll tell people I worked at Google for a couple of years, was close to kind of folks that are driving the space, and uh, and learn a bunch of stuff, and then figure it out from there. So. You know, moved out to moved out to the West Coast back in 2015, and then have been with uh, with Capital G since. Amazing. Would love to hear a little bit too about the origin of Capital G as well, and the relationship with Google, because I know that that Google it, it's a single LP structure of a firm, and also kind of understand as well because Google Ventures, obviously, a very well known early stage venture capital fund. Wanted to also just kind of understand if there's a relationship or, or kind of how with, with Google Ventures and kind of just where you kind of see yourselves in the market. So first on Capital G, so we are Alphabet's independent growth fund, and our mission is to invest in sort of the leading technology companies in markets where we see significant opportunities for innovation. And so we've invested in companies the likes of Lyft, Airbnb, Robinhood, Snap, Credit Karma, Niantic. And then our strategy is, is not only to support our portfolio companies with our own resources and network, but also to leverage Google and Alphabet's resources to help our companies scale and grow. And we're typically investing in companies sort of at the growth stage, which we define as post-product market fit. Uh, series B through D is kind of the typical stage. And as I mentioned, we got started in, in 2013 and have, you know, now invested in, in 50 plus portfolio companies. So that, that's a little bit about us. Um, and then as far as the GV question is concerned, we are both independent funds, uh, backed by Alphabet. They focus more on the early stage and we focus more on the growth stage. And really we operate very, very independently. You know, folks often ask if there's a relationship where they fund companies and then we back them. That's not the case. We're sort of very independent and operate kind of uh, uh, with our own mandates. What's your definition of growth past, you know, venture capital? Where's that kind of line? I think that would be helpful for, for listeners. So typically, an early stage of a company is is sort of a a vision and a problem statement, a thesis about how to solve that problem, and a team that's you know working to do that. And the early days of a company are really about trying to find uh, product market fit, find a way to deliver a solution to customers and provide value. In our view, the growth stage really begins after that point in a company's evolution. Um, right? You've sort of You've built a product and you've demonstrated that you're sort of providing a valuable service to a set of customers. And now you're really in the second layer of your kind of development, which you have to sort of scale the business. And so as growth stage investors, we ask very different questions than sort of early stage investors, right? So an early stage investor might ask, 
is this a big market? Is this the right team to back? Do I think they can get to product market fit? At the growth stage, principally the, the three questions that we're asking is, well, how big could this market actually be? Do I think that this company and this team can scale to a broader set of customers within that market opportunity? And there's a whole subset of questions that come out of that. And then the third is, is there a business model here that can drive value both to customers, but also to the company in question itself? And so we spend a lot more time on, on those three questions uh, and answering those as, as part of being growth stage investors as compared to kind of the early stage uh, when you're focused more on product market fit. That makes sense because I'd imagine when you're doing, we talk a lot about you know market sizing and some, and there's, and there's actually kind of a debate on the show depending on on who you ask in terms of does it make sense to market size when you're so early um, because it's pretty tough. Like I'm thinking, you know, Fitbit came out, the wearables was a super small market, so it's tough to really know how large that market could be when it was you know fairly new at the time, um, and they. And they, of course, did you know very very well uh, capturing uh, with their technology uh, capturing that market. And I'd imagine that at the growth stage, you can become maybe a lot more accurate since the market, if it is you know a new market. We've also also had the debate on the show of of if there are truly new markets. But if it is a new market, I'd imagine at the growth stage you can get a much more clear idea, like an estimation or statistic in terms of how how large that market could be? It's a really good question um, and one that we think about a lot. So I think the answer is that it's it's not altogether obvious even at the growth stage. Um, and I think there's sort of two variants of this. You know, there's companies that are building in, in markets that are pre-existing and kind of replacing a precedent service uh, because there's some new technology innovation. So as a result, you know, in the, in the software world, you sort of have a company that was built on-prem, now the cloud's around, and you replicate that service on the cloud. There it's sort of easier to say, hey, there's a specific market size and profit pool that exists, and it's transitioning to to kind of, you know, this new form factor. Or, or there's some vertical niches where it's easier to tell a market size, right? There's there's only so many restaurants in the U.S., and so if you're building restaurant software, you can kind of tell, hey, this is probably going to be the size of my market. What's challenging spe- uh, specifically about consumer companies is they're very rarely kind of fit those two paradigms, right? It's sort of um, it's sort of all about uh, creating a new behavior pattern with consumers and sort of expanding the market. And so to, to give you a tangible example for this in our own portfolio, you know, we invested in Robinhood at the Series D round. And uh, it was very hard, even at that stage, when it was a fairly sizable company, to know kind of uh, how many accounts they would have uh, long term. Uh, and I can say that we were off uh, in that estimate by a fact, by a significant factor. You know, now that all all that's said and done, all of that to say that I think you know, and this is why I love the growth stage uh, as an investor, especially having coming from the private equity world, where. It's, it's got an analytical component. You do have more information as a basis to, to make decisions and make forecasts, but you still have to have that sort of, uh, mental pliability to say, Hey, this could be much bigger or smaller or change in ways that are hard to predict. Uh, and you're still kind of basically making a venture bet. Yeah. No, those are all, you know, 
really good points. Um, and I appreciate you saying it's still tough, even though it sounds the companies that you're looking at are, are farther along than in the venture stage or the early stages, it's still really hard to get a read. And I imagine that in the case of Robinhood that you said it was a good thing that you were off in terms of what you were off by. So um, that's that's great. And also I know that, you know, obviously when we were talking before, you invest in emerging markets, you also invest in companies that are built in the U.S. like like a Robin Hood. How do you think about investing, not lumping into emerging markets all in the same kind of one category, but what are maybe some of the some of the things that you think about when looking at a company that's building maybe um, an emerging market versus the U.S.? Maybe what are some of the differences and some of the considerations that you have to keep in mind? There's a few that are quite material over the years that have sort of um, that have sort of come up. One thing that folks often think when they're looking at companies in the emerging markets is they say, "Oh, there's these are huge markets because there's sort of you know billions of users uh, in these markets," and that's certainly true. But the sort of GDP per capita and and more specifically the dispersion of wealth looks very different than in the U.S. or or other developed markets. And so as an entrepreneur, you have to think really hard about what customer segment you're going after kind of in an emerging market and be really crisp about that to make sure that there's sort of, you know, the potential to actually build a business around that customer in the long term. In the U.S., you know, you can get away with sort of being less clear about that at the beginning because, you know, there's ways to kind of build a business model over time. So so that that's one big difference uh, I think that that you know that comes up early. The second is you know the canonical advice for for startups is you know be extremely focused, be the best at one thing, iterate quickly on that thing, and and provide a lot of value. And I find that that advice can be actually quite counterproductive in the emerging markets. Right? There's um, it's often the case that you can't necessarily build a big business off of, of a single service, and so early in a company's evolution you have to start to think about building multiple products as a way to both hook and, and monetize customers. And that's a very different sort of uh, way of building a business than, than sort of we've learned in the U.S. I think the, the sort of uh, technology companies in China have, have been much more, uh, have built in that way much better than sort of we have in, in this country. Yeah, so those are a couple of the, the main ones on the, on the customer side. The third is more on the sort of infrastructure side. So and the reality is you're you're starting to build companies with a lot less sort of precedent infrastructure in and around you. And so oftentimes you have to sort of vertically integrate and build that infrastructure yourself. And I mentioned I spend a lot of time in the fintech space. As an example, if you're building a lending company in the emerging markets, it's not enough to find customers, underwrite them and give them money. You also have to find a way to bring capital into the market uh, because secured, securitization markets don't exist in the same way that they do in the U.S. And so you're, in the very early days of a company, you're playing this balancing act of, of both trying to build a product for customers, but also trying to manage uh, a very different kind of institutional side of the business. And, and that's a different skill set and is a broad skill set required to build a company. And one more, which I think is interesting, is the education systems in a lot of these markets look very different tend to be much more specialized. And so um, when you hire folks, you often have to hire for very specialized skill sets, which means early in a company's journey, you have a much bigger organization than you do in the U.S. 
And so founders have to transition quickly from being builders to becoming managers and finding ways to stay nimble uh, despite sort of having a large population. So those are some of the things that I think about, Mike, that are sort of very different. And, you know, all of that to say, I think it's incredibly difficult to build businesses in emerging markets, but also if you can get it right, extremely rewarding because it's uh you build real uh, competitive advantages over time uh, and you earn the right to do a lot. And I think that's why you see this sort of, you know, over the last decade, we've started to see some really kind of amazing companies be built all over the world. And I'm a strong believer that, you know, that's only going to continue over the next decade. There's another interesting trend, actually, just sort of that's changing more recently, which is, you know, I think if you looked at the last decade in emerging markets, it was sort of, you know, the idea was, copy the models that have worked in the West and and bring them to these markets, right? And um, that was a successful approach for many entrepreneurs. But the other really interesting trend, especially from a consumer standpoint, is that now you have an explosion of, of data and mobile available in these markets in a way that even it's hard to conceive of for us who are living in the U.S., and so you're starting to see completely new behavior paradigms. And I think what's going to be really interesting uh, over the next decade is actually the net migration back of learnings and business models from the emerging markets back to the developed markets. And I think that's going to be a really fascinating thing to watch. You you sort of saw that in, in China initially with sort of the rise of social commerce, which was really, a, a, it had no precedent kind of in the U.S. And now you're starting to see uh, companies in the U.S. that are starting to build live stream and social experiences. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot more of that uh, in a much more sort of globalized technology world than than we've experienced thus far. I also kind of wanted to know, too, when you started your career, you understood how powerful mobile was. That was when the mobile revolution was happening, you know, 2010, 2011. What do you think is the next cycle going to be? Is it a Web3 in crypto? Is it the metaverse? Is it something else? I mean, how do you as an investor, when you think about these large macro consumer, tra- like the, the mar- large macro consumer platform, which might come out, you know, once 10 or 15 years or so, and we're almost at that kind of spot. Well, we certainly are at that spot. Um, what do you think about what's next on like a macro level for the consumer? It's a great question and one that we're all thinking about all the time. <laughs> um, you know, I certainly am a big believer Web3 and crypto. I do think, and I think that the potential there to dwarf uh, what we've seen with mobile is extremely, extremely large. Because I think it's, it sort of has properties that are, are very interesting and unique in that sort of enables creators, enables creativity, enables engagement in a whole different paradigm. And it's sort of, uh, you know, I think Chris Dixon's used this word skeuomorphic. It's sort of, it's hard to predict even kind of all the things that could come out of this. I'm bullish on that, but I think to be fair, what's holding that ecosystem back is is sort of, the, the underlying infrastructure has not been figured out yet. And and, and the costs are, are extremely high and, and uh, scalability is an issue. But but I'm, I'm certainly very bullish on, on that trend overall. The other one that I think we're not talking about as much, but I, I think is going to be huge is digital health. I think the potential to 
track data, capture data, make recommendations based on that data, change the value chain of how medicine happens is a huge opportunity kind of in the next decade. And a lot of that innovation right now, you know, sits in kind of the the farmer world, but you're starting to see the first innings of that getting, you know, sort of becoming real consumer technologies. And again, I think that's sort of a, that's sort of, you know, a 10x sort of impact, but a 100x sort of impact on how we live our lives. And I spent some time in healthcare. And when you're on the inside, you're like, there's so many uh, barriers to this stuff working, uh, just from a reimbursement standpoint and, and kind of getting out to market. But the underlying technologies are evolving at a very rapid rate. And I think there's there's a lot that's going to happen in that in that space. So those are the two that I, uh, you know, that I think about a lot. And uh I get very excited about, but you know, I think there's there's a bunch of things also that are sub trends, right? I think if you if you think about just drones and that, that that potential to change the supply chain, what could that do to consumer experiences? VR, obviously, we haven't talked about that's sort of part of the the metaverse and AR, and so I, I think there's a number of uh, potential platform shifts, but the the ones I get excited about are definitely the crypto and, and digital health trends that are possible. We say time and time again on the show, and, and maybe it's a throwaway that, that we shouldn't be saying, but you know, once you have product market fit, then you're really is the beginning of the growth stage and you know all the scale and, and growth happens. How do you think about the term product market fit when you're evaluating companies? For consumer companies in particular, we think a lot about the frequency of connection and the level of engagement of each interaction. And I think if you're building, if you have aspirations to build sort of a, you know, very large scale consumer company where folks are reorganizing their lives to interact with you, typically you tend to have one or both of those things in spades. And so we think a lot about it, about that. And then, you know, the other thing that we look at to evaluate product market fit is does that intensity of connection drive you know, referring behavior or sort of new customer acquisition and advantage in new sort of customer acquisition. And so those are some of the, we were talking earlier about how the growth stage, things become more quantitative. That is definitely one thing, uh, testing product market fit can become a lot more quantitative at the growth stage because you can look at the behavior of the existing customers of a company and say, I can tell how, how much these customers love this product or don't. So that's typically, you know, the way at the growth stage that we sort of evaluate that 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 kind of piece. What are some of the more unique customer acquisition strategies you've seen from companies that they're actually able to scale with? I've been surprised by how uh, little attention this gets as, as sort of companies scale. The prototypical company that consumer investors always want to invest in is like you often heard, hear the term pull versus push, right? So it's sort of... Uh, we want to invest in pull companies where, you know, there's a lot of organic momentum, there's virality, and what you were saying, sort of the virality continues forever and we have huge companies. And, and those companies are great and very rare and, and special. But I do think that the competencies around scaling uh, marketing are critical for all companies, including those that sort of have that kind of level of virality. And, you know, typically what I see there is uh, that early on companies find product market fit. They find a channel that's working. You know, most part, if you're an app-based product, it's going to be, it's going to be Facebook. And, you know, there's, there's a sense that you can kind of scale, but 
there's there's not the um, Christmas around kind of how you build out a paid marketing organization over time. And some of the things that, you know, over the years that I, I've sort of started to think about is, you know, three or four factors that are pretty critical for, for paid marketing. So one is to really understand, like, in what context does your product really kind of sell? So are you best positioned to market on contextual channels like Instagram or, or kind of query-based channels like Google? Um, and to really think about like what is the messaging and kind of what channel best suits your your growth needs. The second is sort of the depth of the channel. So I think companies, especially at the early stage, often way overestimate how deep the channels are in any one given channel and, and don't diversify quickly enough. And then you know there's there's a lot around the quality of marketing execution. So as an example. Just the number of creative tests that you're running on Facebook with different creatives and messaging can have a huge impact on your end state cost of acquisition. And, um, you know, we often see that folks don't invest enough in that kind of, in those capabilities. And then the final is conversion funnel, right? And kind of playing around with that uh, over time. So I know I'm just kind of roundabout way of answering your question, Mike, but sort of the way I sort of think about it is, are companies building those core building blocks that allow them to scale across many channels? And are they continuously testing new channels, right? So I think um, the sort of core big platform paid channels are interesting, uh, but now there's a ton of stuff you can do around influencers, affiliates, um, testing OTT and YouTube. It's not sort of that one magical thing sometimes, but it's sort of, you know, the aggregation of all these tiny marginal gains across many different channels that can actually lead to like differential scaling uh, versus your competitors. And I think those are those are skill sets that, you know, they're sort of not, uh, you talk about them less in a board meeting because it's not the product and not the, the uh, you know, the core things that are interesting for, to talk about as a company, but are critical to scaling and, and something that like, you know, I, I, I think the founders should be investing in early. I love the fact that you really pay a lot of attention in terms of the actual customer acquisition and how they're able to actually acquire customers. When I think about this whole notion of like pull versus push companies, I think when I think of pull, I think about search just primarily because there's that there's that customer intent. They're already thinking about how they can solve whatever problem that the company is solving, which that's great, but there's all there's only going to be so many people that actually are, have that intent. And so as well, how can you actually convince people that maybe not be, you know, searching for the searching or thinking about that problem um, consciously, right? And then, of course, obviously testing creative and, you know, never really losing that as part of what you need to do in order to scale. And that makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of how you actually think about, about scale. And so what's one thing that you would change about venture capital? We still have a huge lack of representation in venture capital. And I'm so bullish post my experience in the industry about like the potential of, of technology to like, frankly, change the world and also be a positive force for sort of wealth creation for folks. But I'm also kind of stunned, you know, now having been in it for six years about how concentrated that is within this relatively small community. I think we as an industry have strides to make to to start to expand the opportunity set. And, you know, we talked a lot about some of the work we're doing in emerging markets, which I see as, as you know, part of that effort. But but also we have a lot of work to do kind of across uh, demographic groups in, in the U.S. itself. And so there's positive trends there, but the, the baselines were so low that we've got a long way to go um, to kind of expand that, that opportunity set. What is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? 
So the professional one is easy because I, I, uh, I'll give you the one that I'm reading right now. I'm reading the, the Sam Walton biography. It is just an incredible story, you know, sort of just like his love affair with, with the business of retailing and the, the passion with which he built the company. It's very intoxicating and sort of like reaffirms, you know, kind of, uh, the business we're in of trying to build, of trying to find uh, founders we're building iconic company. And, you know, on the personal front, I'll say one for the home team. I, I, I love the, the Bhagavad Gita, which is, um, which is a Indian religious text, but really kind of more of like a conversation between two people about like, about the meaning of life and, and very powerful. And so I find myself going back and reading that often, never the full thing at one time, but just like passages of it. And I, and, uh, very life-affirming and calming. So that's probably the personal one. My final question to you is, what's the best piece of advice that you've received? Back in my private equity days, I had a chance to interact with Richard Parsons, who is actually the former chairman of Citigroup and Time Warner. He was an advisor to the, the fund that I worked for. We had lunch a couple of times, and he said something that really stuck with me, which was, you know, in your career, you want to be the person that other people root for. And uh, I think about that like all the time, almost every week. And uh, so I try to bring that ethos to, um, to interactions that I have with pretty much everyone. That's the most salient piece of advice that I've, one of the more salient pieces of advice that I've, that I've gotten. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's so true. So true. Sumi, thank you so much again for your time. This is so much fun. So much fun as well. Thank you for having me on. Big fan of the podcast. And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Sumi. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.